0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to book of Genesis, chapter number 3. From the outside, it looked like such a perfect family. The family portrait revealing the smiling faces, the coordinated outfits, the matching colors. And the picture shouted, we've got it all together. How surprised everyone was when the rumors were found out to be true the nasty fight, the custodial battle over the kids, the courts dividing the assets. How could a perfect family fall into such disarray? You know, that's kind of the way the Bible begins in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. In chapters 1 and 2, we're presented with a perfect family. Everything looks so perfect. Everything looks ideal. And then all of a sudden, chapter 3 comes along and disarray takes over and everything falls apart and we have to if we're honest readers of the word of God this is the way God introduces his word we've got to stand back and say whoa what is this all about how did such a amazing family so quickly fall into disarray what in the world happened to God's perfect family that he designed, and learning the lessons of the first family are strategic in our lives. God introduces the Bible by introducing us to this perfect family, and then it's failure, and then the, the provision that God makes in order for that family of disarray to be made whole again. Well, we've considered for uh, just the last couple of weeks, three weeks, I guess, uh, four weeks, we've, we've considered this perfect family. We looked at, the, at God's creation of the family in, in Genesis 1 and 2, designed by God. We, we looked at the team's captain, uh, at uh, this loving servant leader that God put as the head of the family. We looked at the amazing uh, help uh, that was meet for Adam to be able to help him be successful and to be uh, suitable for his life. And we we saw this perfect family. And then all of a sudden, we read chapter 3. And uh, they reject and reverse their roles. The man tells God that the problem is the woman. Uh, they get kicked out of the garden. God, God even puts up uh, cherubim with flaming swords to keep them from getting back in the garden. I mean, this... This is disaster. Genesis 3 changed everything. And last Sunday we began looking at Genesis 3 and we saw that the sin that occurred in Genesis 3 brought terrible consequences to Adam and Eve. And we focused on those consequences last week. What what did sin do to them? What was the consequence of sin in their lives? We saw there were consequences in their personal lives. All of a sudden, they knew some things that they, they really didn't need to know. And because of what they knew, a battle began to rage within them as to how to handle that new knowledge they'd received. We saw that they were filled with guilt and despair. We saw the consequences that occurred not only personally to them, but the consequences Between them and God. All of a sudden they're afraid of God. They're hiding from God. And the relationship they had with God was severed by their sin. And then we also looked at the consequences toward each other as the two members of the team. How they began to blame others for the decisions they had made. And and how that things came into their life that caused the, the man to try to dominate and rule over his spouse and cause the wife to try to manipulate and control her husband. And, and we saw that the there were consequences in their married relationship. Consequences personally and individually. Consequences between me and God and consequences between me and my spouse. All consequences of the sin of Genesis chapter 3. Family problems really are most often the consequences of sin. And we learned that last week. But how did Adam and Eve go from innocence to sinfulness? How did they go from a perfect everything to a miserable everything? What happened that led to the decisions that were made that brought the sin that came into the human family. More importantly. What happens when I decide to sin? What leads me to making decisions that. That are sinful. I learned that from. Examining Adam and Eve and learning what. Led to the decisions that they made and really. I I think we could say the. 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 Um, The place it all began is in chapter 3, verse 1, when the Bible says, now the serpent was more subtle. That's interesting. Here's where it all began. The word subtle means something that's crafty, something that's cunning. In other words, there was something that occurred as the result of a masterful plan, a cunning set of actions a, 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 a carefully planned out strategy to bring the fall of the human race. And God introduces us, us to that by mentioning how that Satan used the serpent. And the serpent was seen as more wise than any of the creatures that God had created. Cunning crafty you know Jesus spoke of a serpent in Matthew chapter 10 when he said behold I send you forth as a as sheep in the midst of wolves be ye therefore wise as serpents Jesus spoke of the serpent as an animal as carrying with it the image of wisdom of cunning of craftiness Of the ability to think something through and make very careful moves in order to achieve a purposed end. It's it's the master chessman at the chessboard. And every move he makes is strategically made because of the ramifications it'll have five plays down in the match. Cunning, crafty, wise, purposeful, not doing anything by mistake or accidental. Nothing just done, everything with a purpose, everything put together in a plan, destroy humanity. And Satan was very, very capable in what he did. This v- valuable characteristic, I mean, it is a valuable characteristic to be wise to be purposeful, to think down the road and and to make plans and to make moves strategically. That's, That's a great trait to have. Satan used it in a devious way. He turned it into an evil purpose. He used the serpent and its seemingly natural ability and he set out, With a masterful plan to entice Adam and Eve. To rebel against their creator. And he was successful. And for all these thousands of years since. The human population has. Bore the fruit of it. In our lives. So we need to learn about Satan's masterful plan. You know the beginning of being able to. Uh, to be safe is to be able to know the enemy's plan the bible teaches us that in the new testament in 1 peter chapter 5 verse 8 god speaking to us about satan said that the devil is a roaring lion seeking about uh, walking about seeking whom he may devour we we know satan loves to devour humanity and 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 jesus the the word of god rather likens Satan to a roaring lion wanting to pounce upon a human being and destroy them. And so listen to what, what the Bible says at the beginning of that verse. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Be sober. Be vigilant. The instruction we're given is, know Satan's plan. Know his strategies. Understand how he operates. Know your enemy's battle plan. And the more you know about your enemy's battle plan, the more likely you are to succeed in not being destroyed by your enemy. And so, what we have in this beginning of the Bible, in the first chapter introducing us to sin... God lays out the masterful strategy of Satan to destroy humanity. And Satan is still employing this strategy to our very day. So today what we want to do is learn the crafty plan that the deceiver uses to try to be be victorious in our lives. And so what is this plan? Well, there's four steps. You see them as one, two, three, and four on your little sermon worksheet. There's safety in knowing the enemy's battle plan. And uh, Satan's battle plan had four steps. And the first step for Satan was to plan your point of attack. Plan your point of attack. Isn't it true in military exercises and military strategy that the, the, uh, the military will, will try to figure out where the weakest point of attack is? Where the most vulnerable point of attack is? And if I can find the most vulnerable place to attack, that's where we're going to mass our energy. That's where we're going to attack because that's the vulnerable place. So we are going to plan the point of attack. Satan did that. Satan started out with planning the point of attack i want you to see in verse number 1 the bible says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the lord had made and he said unto the woman now don't associate the word woman with the word weakness in a military strategy you look for the weakest point in the line that, that that's a terrible analogy when it comes to the Satan attacking woman it wasn't her weakness it was the purpose for which God created her and how he designed her to be perfect in the role that he created her to fulfill Satan knew that her role was such that she would be the vulnerable place to attack In verse number 6, the Bible tells us at the end of the verse that she gave the fruit to her husband with her. Notice her husband was standing beside her when Satan spoke to her. That's critical to observe. Satan didn't find Eve by herself. He found Adam and Eve standing together. And when Satan approached Adam and Eve standing together, the point of attack that he planned was to address the woman with the questions that he had and the statements that he would make. Not because of the woman is weak, but because God had created and equipped Eve to help, not lead. That's how he made her. That's how he equipped her. That's what he built into her. She was there to help Adam be successful. And he created Adam to lead the team forward. And so Satan did not choose to attack the one designed as a leader. His plan was to attack the one who was designed to be the helper. You know, we're not even sure that Eve was present. Well, we know she was not present when God initially gave the instructions about what trees to eat and not eat. That was given in Genesis chapter 3, uh, 2 to Adam before Eve was created. And so God said to Adam in the verses I read from chapter 2, verse 15, uh, 16, and 17, God said to, the, to, to Adam... Uh, that he was to dress and keep the garden and gave him instructions about what trees to eat, gave him instructions about what trees not to eat, gave him instructions about the consequences of eating the wrong tree. God had given all those instructions to Adam before Eve was created. How much did Adam relate to Eve those instructions? Did Adam accurately tell Eve everything God had said before she was created? We do not know. The Bible does not reveal that to us. We do know that Adam knew everything that God had said. We don't know whether Eve knew everything that God had said. Eve's role was, was a role that involved being protected, not providing protection for Adam. And so Satan planned his point of attack. He won't, he's not going to attack the one designed to be a leader. He's not going to attack the captain of the team designed to be the spokesman he's not going to attack the captain of the team who knows everything that God had revealed before Eve's creation he chooses to attack the one who was not designed to be the protector but to be the protected Satan carefully plans where he's going to attack In people's lives. John MacArthur in his book. Different by design. Speaking of uh, man and woman. Husband and wife. He said. Bypassing the leadership of the man. The serpent went after the woman. Who was designed. The follower. And what is really. Disappointing. Is that Adam stood there. And let it happen. From what we can tell, from what the scripture reveals, Adam didn't raise an objection. He didn't say, no, 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 oh, 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 oh. He stood there and watched it happen. Here's the first passive absentee husband in the Bible. He stands there and watches. But he does nothing to protect. He's passive He's absent from, in the sense of involving himself in what was going on. John MacArthur also said in the same book, Both the man and the woman twisted God's plan for their relationship, reversing their roles. And marriage has not been the same since. John Piper and Wayne Grudem, in their book, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, said this. Isn't it striking that we fell upon an occasion of sex role reversal? The very first sin involved the reversal of the roles for which God designed, created and designed a man and a woman for. And the very first sin came as a result of the reversal of those roles. John Piper and Wayne Grudem went on to contemplate, went on to to extrapolate from that. They said, are we to institutionalize in evangelicalism in the name of God, in, in, in the name of the God who condemned it in the beginning? Interesting question. This is an issue being grappled with today. The word of God doesn't fit the modern view of things and so we have the dichotomy between what God says and what man says and the wrestling of that it's dangerous to get out of the place that God created me for and we see Satan very carefully chose where he was going to attack to try to bring down humanity Well, that was only the first step that he took. Then he took a second step. The second step is that he raised suspicion about God. In verse number one of Genesis three, Satan said, Yea, hath God said? And I want you to notice that Satan's second step in his masterful plan was to try to get humanity to be suspicious of God. Did God really say? You can almost hear the snarl, the hiss of the serpent in the question. And all of a sudden, humanity began to be suspicious about God. Did God really say this? Are you sure this really matters? You mean you can't eat of every tree? You mean there's some trees that God won't let you eat? How unfair of your creator. Do you think he could really mean that, that there are some things that would be enjoyable that he won't let you have? And Satan, in his second step of his plan of attack, raises suspicion about God. Causes people to wonder, does God really, is he really looking out after my best interests? Is he really withholding from me something that would be enjoyable and good for me to have? Did did God really say that? I mean, Adam told me he said that, perhaps. Eve didn't hear it directly from God. We don't know how much she heard afterwards from God or Adam. But we do know that Satan began by getting man to be suspicious of God. In God's motives, Satan will raise suspicion regarding God and whether he means what he says. Did God really say that? Does he really mean what he says? Is it really that important? You know, Satan wants humanity to be suspicious of God, to question God. Did he really mean that in the Bible? Is it really that important, what he said in the Bible? And Satan wants us to be suspicious of and question God in our lives. What parts of God's word do you put a question mark over? What parts of God's word do you read it and then say, did God really mean that? What parts of God's word do you read and say, is it it really that big a deal? That's where Satan began to tear down the defenses of Adam and Eve. To move them towards rebellion against their creator. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Really, God? All my heart? Really? If you love me, obey me. Really, God? I mean, every day in every situation. I mean, the Bible is so full of instructions on what it is that pleases God and how to live to please God. You know what Satan wants me to do? He wants me to be suspicious of God. Why did he tell me to do that? What's he withholding from me? What does he want me to enjoy? What, 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 does God really mean that? And that is the suspicion that begins to question God. And then there's a third step. The third step is to recreate God into the image of what I think he ought to be like. Now there's a typo uh, on, in your little handout uh, that I found this morning. Number one should not say your weakness. Number one should say your new God. Your new God. Satan challenged Adam and Eve, to recreate God into something a little bit different than what he had revealed himself to be. Because once you begin to question what God said, and you begin to doubt if God really meant it, and if it's all that important, now it's time for a frontal attack directly against God himself. Change God into an image that fits the lifestyle of the human being. Let's manipulate God and make Him fit what they want so that they can live for God and please themselves at the same time. How did Satan do this? Let me introduce you to Adam and Eve's new God. In verse number 2 of our text, Verse number two, the woman said, the, at the end of verse number one, Satan had said, uh, ye shall not eat. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Let me introduce you to your new God. Your new God isn't as good as you thought he was. You notice in verse number 2, Eve said, we may eat. If you look across the page to chapter 2 and to verse number 16, what God actually said was, of every tree of the garden thou mayest. You see the next word? She left that out. Now, I don't know if she left it out because Adam had failed to adequately communicate the goodness of God that is incorporated into that word or whether Adam had told her and she just is dismissing it. Whichever way, one of the two of them began to minimize the goodness of God. God said, look at the trees in the garden. Look at all of the fruit you can freely eat. To your heart's content. And when Satan questioned Eve about what God said, she minimized the goodness, left out the word freely, said, well, God said we could eat. You know, there's a lot of difference between saying, God said we can eat, and God saying, you may freely eat. I want you to notice that in Satan's masterful strategy... He wants humanity to recreate God by minimizing his goodness. Don't consider God in all of the abundance that he gives to us. In all of the abundance of blessings that he provides for us. Don't focus on the goodness of God. Minimize the goodness of God. And then focus on his judgment. You'll notice in verse 3 of our text again, in verse number 3, she said, uh, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. But notice she left out a word. If you go back to chapter 2, what God actually said, The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I want you to notice the minimizing of the judgment of God as man answered Satan's questions. Satan wants us to minimize how good God is. He also wants us to minimize how severe God's judgment is. He wants us to minimize the tragedy of disobeying God. In its judgments. He wants us to minimize the catastrophe. Of the flood that destroyed the world. Save eight people. He wants us to minimize the catastrophe. Of the Tower of Babel falling down. He wants us to minimize the catastrophe. Of eternal judgment in hell. Apart from God forever. You see Satan wants us to always minimize. The judgment of God. Not focus on the judgment of God. Let's not talk about God as Jehovah Nakeh. The God who smites. Let's only talk about God as a God of love. And let's, and let's minimize the judgment of God. This has always been Satan's strategy. He began it thousands of years ago. By trying to get Adam and Eve to minimize how good God is and how severe his judgment is. And do you understand that in the world we live in today, Satan is still doing that. He's trying to get people to minimize how good God is. And he's trying to get people to minimize how serious God's judgment is. But then there's a third part of this new God. And that is exaggerating his requirements. Exaggerating his requirements. In verse number 3, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. But back in chapter 2, God never said anything about touching it. He just said don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. And so in God's record of helping us to understand the strategy of Satan, there is a strategic statement left uh, added in which exaggerates the requirements of God in a person's life. Isn't that true that Satan does that today? You mean God makes you do this and God makes you do that and God makes you do this and God makes you do that? and God, God says, you, you have to do what then? And Satan still wants people to exaggerate the requirements of God. This is a new God. This isn't the God who exists. This is a God that fits man. This is a God that makes it easier for man to exist with God. This is a new God. He's not as good as he really is. He doesn't judge as bad as he really does. And he's a whole lot more strict than what he really might be. And all of a sudden, I've created a new God that's different from the God of the Bible. That's Satan's strategy. And then he attacks God directly. After he has has played off from Adam and Eve's betrayal of God... Created doubts as to whether God really meant this. And really said this. After he's exaggerated things about God. And minimized things about God. And put all these questions in their mind. Then Satan steps back. And leashes a frontal attack. Directly against God himself. In verse number 2. In verse number 2. Verse number Four, I'm sorry. Verse number four. The serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. You notice Satan put in the word surely that Eve left out. Satan knew that word was supposed to be there. Man may have minimized that, but Satan knew. And Satan looked at Adam and Eve and said, you will not surely die. God will not judge you like he said he would judge you. You can't believe what God says. And Satan's frontal attack was an attack on the teachings of God. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the Bible says. It's not true. You will not surely die. Satan's effort to give man a recreated God minimizes and exaggerates the reality of God, and then attacks him by denying that what God says is really true. He is a liar. You can't believe God. You can't believe the word of God. You need to create a God for yourself that's different from the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible has lied to you. Frontal attack. And then in verse number five, you see, he begins, to, he begins to question the motives of God again. In verse number five, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so Satan questions the motive of why God had said, He didn't say not to eat the fruit because there's something bad about the fruit. He said, Don't eat the fruit because he wants to withhold from you. Good things that you could have. He wants to have things you don't have. He wants to enjoy pleasures you can't enjoy. He wants to have what he forbids you from having. He questions the motives of God. God is just trying to keep you from all the fun. This isn't as bad as what the Bible makes it out to be. God just doesn't want you to have all the fun. He's trying to control you and keep you from enjoying what is really good. You need to create for yourself a God who won't restrict your behavior. One who will let you enjoy life and do what you want to do. You need a new God. A God who's not as good as what the Bible says he is. He's not as bad as what the Bible he won't, won't. The judgment isn't as bad as what he said it'd be. And, and he doesn't require... All that the Bible says that he requires You just need a new God Because he's a liar And he's trying to keep you from having fun in life That's Satan's strategy It's been that way from Adam and Eve It's still that way today Satan's strategic plan to destroy humanity Is still playing itself out In every successive generation And then there's a a final step in Satan's plan. He, he, he attacks at the place. Where he's most likely able to succeed. In Adam and Eve's case. He bypassed the leader. And he. His point of attack was the one designed to help. And to be protected. In all of our lives. He knows our weaknesses. Male or female. He knows our weaknesses. He knows. He knows what our besetting sins are. He knows what is most likely to get our attention away from God. He, he knows what temptations we have a harder time uh, saying no to. He, he strategically plans how he's going to attack us because he knows us. He watches us. He studies us. And then he plans how to attack us. He, 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 he attacks us by causing us to be suspicious of God. And then to recreate God in a way that we want God to be. And then the final step is to challenge us to focus on pleasure in life. In verse number 6, verse 6 says, And the woman saw the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired. I want you to notice that Satan focused their attention on something that was pleasant. That they would enjoy. Uh, there, there are three three numbers under that. Focusing on pleasure at the bottom of your worksheet. The first one is you consider it. The woman saw. Here's how Satan uh, tries to, 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 to clinch the argument. To, to win the final battle. He he. he, he p- He he causes us to be suspicious of God, to to try to recreate God into a God that that fits us better. And, And then he shows us something that looks really, really enjoyable. And we begin to focus on that. We consider it. Eve, maybe Eve had never paid any attention to that fruit before. She now, the Bible says she saw That the tree was good. In my imagination I can see that Eve turns and looks at the fruit like she'd never looked at it before. Oh she'd seen the fruit before. I I have to to believe that she'd walked through the garden. She knew where the tree was that that she couldn't eat from. No, No doubt she walked by it and saw the fruit hanging there. And just never paid it any attention. But now she looks at it. And she considers it. She focuses on it. That looks like that would taste really good. And she begins to focus on the fruit that she saw. And so she took a long ponder at the fruit and saw that it will please me. It's good for food. It will please me physically because it's good for food. It'll please me mentally because it's pleasant to my eyes. Fun to look at. My mind savors every moment. It pleases me emotionally. It'll make me wise. I'll know some things that God hasn't let me know. And this particular sin, this particular temptation will bring to me something that I couldn't have had before. And so I focus on what I want. Do you understand what's playing out here? We, we've, it's been in our news. It's been it's filled the news for the last year. It's called no consequences. No consequences. When that fruit brings no consequences, then I think about maybe I should. No consequences. We've seen it on the news this last week. New York City. Carjackings are way up. Why? Because it's spread throughout the city that all the thugs know there are no consequences to carjacking. You can knock someone over, jump in their car, take a joy ride. You can get arrested and let back out. No consequences. And so they, they've been saying on the news how that throughout New York City, carjackings are up so high because everyone knows there are no consequences. We learned watching the behavior of certain groups across America that when they realize there are no consequences to burning down buildings, when there are no consequences to smashing glass and looting a store, when there's no consequences and going into a store at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, no face covering, no mask, no, nothing to, to hide my identity, just walk in, grab an armful of everything I can grab and walk out tipped the security guard as I walked by him, get in my car and drive away, there's no consequences. You know what happens when there are no consequences? We're living it. We're living it. No consequences. No consequence childbearing, uh, childbearing, rearing. No consequence rearing. You can disobey mom and dad. You can throw a tantrum. You can do whatever. There are no consequences. No consequences civic life. No consequences. It all started with Adam and Eve. It's not going to be as as bad as what God said. You won't surely die. There won't be the consequences that God painted for you. Look what you're missing. Look at the enjoyment and the fun that God is depriving you of. And she considered it. This is something. And then the verse says... That after she saw the, that it was good for food, the Bible says that she desired it. And she took it. She wanted it. She considered it and then she wanted. it. She reached out and took the fruit. She got it in her hands where she could touch it and feel it. She got it in her hands. Because she wanted it. And then... She acted upon it. She lifted it to her lips and she took a bite and she acted upon what Satan had offered her. This is the masterful strategy of Satan. I'm going to get you, I'm going to attack you where I think I can win. I am going to cause you to be suspicious of God's motives and what He has said in His Word. I'm going to recreate a God that will fit your lifestyle better and then I'm going to get you to focus on what you want in life so that you will consider and want and act upon the things that I offer you. And when Eve's teeth sunk into the fruit, Satan said, gotcha, gotcha. It's all over now. Satan's strategic plan and we watch Adam and Eve As did they get what they wanted did it make them happy did it fulfill their lives did it give them everything it promised no watch them hide from God in fear watch them bury their face in their hands as they're driven out of the garden watch the guilt and the shame and the despair it's Satan's masterful plan to destroy humanity Oh, but the good news is, as we learned last week, chapter 3, the good news of chapter 3 is that God provided for man's failure. And God in His love and mercy, His grace, He had even planned for man's provision before He created Adam and Eve. Because Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And God provided Adam and Eve with a means whereby an innocent could suffer in the place of their guiltiness. And they could have their sin washed away. And they could have the relationship with God recreated by God's mercy and grace and love. And in spite of all that Satan did to destroy, God would do more to redeem, to save, to to bring man back to himself. And we sing, as we've sung today, about the cross of Calvary. Songs about the cross. Why? Because that's where God won the battle that delivers us from the consequences of our sin. And that's why we say, thank God for Jehovah Nisi. His banner over me is love. And I gravitate to that banner because it's His love and grace and mercy in my life. That enabled Satan's masterful plan to be foiled by the cross of Jesus Christ. The salvation that Jesus Christ offers to each and every one of us. The story ends in grace and mercy and love. But God introduced his Bible. Focusing our attention on the masterful strategic plan of Satan. To destroy humanity. That gives us the reason. To tell the story of the cross of Calvary.